What is your main focus in life? What is your main focus in life? You might be someone who can answer that immediately. Uh, maybe like you have like a personal mantra and like you just you know what your main focus is. Maybe you're someone who like writes something like that on your mirror. So when you wake up in the morning, you're, you know um, what your reason for existing is and your main purpose is. Or you may be someone who, are, who thinks, I've never really thought about that. And you would need to reflect on that a little bit. Our passage this afternoon, it challenges us to think about what we're most devoted to in our lives. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. This was the first church that he planted in Europe. And he's writing from prison, and he's overflowing with joy. And in our passage this afternoon, we're going to see what his main focus is. So this is Philippians chapter 1, beginning at the second half of verse 18. I'll read through verse 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The Word of the Lord. Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for speaking to us in Your Word. Uh, if Your Holy Spirit does not meet us and speak to us right now, we can't hear from You. And so, Father, by Your Spirit, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Uh, meet us this afternoon that we might know You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you may have heard of the Ironman Triathlon before. Um, uh, they, they show the Ironman World Championship on TV every year. It's always in Hawaii. And sometimes you're flipping through the TV on a Saturday afternoon and you stumble across this. It's beautiful scenery and it's always like crazy, inspiring, and dramatic TV. It's really fun to watch. So an Ironman Triathlon consists of a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, and a 26.2-mile run. And you do all that together. 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, 26.2-mile run, all together. The world record to complete it is uh, like just under eight hours, roughly. And um, the cutoff time is usually somewhere around 17 or 18 hours. So all that to say, these competitors that choose to do this, by the way, they choose to do this. They are racing from anywhere from 8 to 17 hours all at one time. And there's some really famous footage of the 1982 Ironman World Championship and a woman named Julie Moss. You may have seen this before. Julie was a, a college student studying kinesiology, and she entered the Ironman race um, as basically as research for her project. And she gets into this race, and she was actually leading the women's race up until the very end when it all started falling apart. And all I will tell you is if you have not seen this footage, please go home to YouTube and watch this. 
I mean, it is so wild. And you get some awesome, like, 1982 retro, like, running apparel and stuff. you, you got to see it. But what happens is she collapses on the pavement. It's dark outside because the sun is set this late in the day. There are fans all around her cheering. She literally starts crawling on her hands and knees towards the finish line, and she's in just complete and utter agony. Um, But she keeps focused on the finish line. And she is so focused on the finish line, she is so determined to finish that she does not care what it takes to get to the finish line. She crawls 50 feet on her hands and knees on the pavement to cross the finish line. And she finishes. Her main focus was finishing the Ironman. Think about that for a moment. Think about how that main focus of finishing the Ironman shaped how she ordered her life. Uh, Think about all the hours of training, months in advance, that it took her to get ready to do those distances. Um, Totally rearranging her priorities with family and friends and school in order to have the time to train for something like that. Um, Think about the suffering of that long day of swimming and biking and running that far. Then think about the acute suffering of crawling on your hands and knees while your body is just falling apart for those last 50 feet on the pavement. Her main focus shaped how she ordered her life and how she was willing to suffer. All right, think about the Apostle Paul. In our passage, Paul's main focus is Jesus. He has a singular focus on Jesus. And we get a snapshot of how Jesus, as his main focus, shaped how he ordered his life and then how he was willing to suffer. And as we think about this passage, it's going to force us to think about, all right, what is my main focus in my life right now? And how is that main focus shaping how I order my life and then how I'm willing to suffer? Paul speaks very personally in this passage, and he talks about living and dying. And so here's how I want to think about this passage this afternoon. I want to think about living in Christ and then dying in Christ. Living in Christ and then dying in Christ. First, living in Christ. All right, so Paul, in our previous passage, just finished um, talking about how God was using this setback of him being put in prison to actually advance the gospel. And what everyone thought would actually slow down the spread of the gospel, Paul being in prison, actually served to build momentum for God's kingdom. And he's continuing in our passage to talk about his imprisonment. And he continues again talking about this theme of joy, which is all over the book of Philippians. Look at verse 18 where our passage starts. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice. There it is again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. All right, so he is joyful. Paul is joyful because he knows that this is going to turn out for his deliverance from his present situation. All right, the word deliverance here is a big deal um, because the way that Paul uses it, it sort of has um, two meanings. It means vindication and it means his ultimate salvation. Essentially, that means that when Paul talks about his deliverance, he's saying that the bad guys are not going to win and that Paul's going to be all right no matter what. That's how he uses the word deliverance. At this point, he is not necessarily saying that I know I'm going to get out of this bad situation and be in prison, of being in prison to get out and be free. That's not necessarily what he has in mind here. Look at verse 20. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death, his deliverance doesn't necessarily mean getting out of prison. It means being proven right in his standing for Christ no matter what. Whether he lives or dies, he's saying that Jesus is going to be honored no matter what happens to me in my situation. Have you ever been in a hard situation in your life? Maybe it was like acute pain, physical pain, or just a really hard circumstance. And so you tried to broker a deal with God. And so it it was something like this. Um, God, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'll go to church every week. Or God, if you help me right now, I promise I'll stop saying bad words. Or God, if you help me right now, I promise I'm going to be good from here on out. I'll stop doing that bad thing. I'm just going to be good from here on out. Um, You see this a lot in movies where it looks like someone is just like at the very end of themselves. They're barely hanging on. And they cry out to God something along the lines of, if you fix this bad temporary situation, then I'm going to pay you back and do something good for you, God. So if you meet me, then I'll meet you. Um, Notice in our passage how Paul is not brokering a deal with God. He's not brokering a deal with God. He's not bargaining. He's not saying, all right, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Meet me halfway here. That's not what he's saying. What is he doing? He's surrendering everything to God. Everything about his current situation. He's essentially saying, Jesus, whether I live or die, whether I get out of here or not, be honored. Be honored with my life or be honored with my death. He's not brokering. He's not bargaining. He's surrendering everything to God. And then he writes these powerful words in verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. What does he mean by that? It means that living in Christ means serving and suffering for Christ. Living in Christ means serving and suffering for Christ. Verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. All right, what is this fruitful labor? He tells us later in the passage, verses 24 to 26. He says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's talking to the Philippians. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, so this fruitful labor that Paul is talking about, it's the work that God has called him to, his ministry in particular to the Philippian church. And he says that he would prefer to die and go and be with Jesus, but he's confident that God's going to keep him and he's going to keep him around to continue to minister to the Philippians. So living in Christ, it means serving Christ in the particular calling that God has placed on your life. And we see here that he's willing to continue to suffer towards that goal, to stay in prison, to keep fighting, to keep living out this calling that God has placed on him, even if he would prefer to do something else, which in his case is to die and go be with Jesus. And also note the theme of joy that he brings up again in verse 25. He talks about their progress, being able to minister to the Philippians for their progress in the faith and their progress in, uh, in joy and their joy in the faith. 
that his ministry to them is actually going to contribute to their joy. So to grow in your faith is to grow in joy. A deeper and deeper relationship with Jesus means deeper and deeper joy. Paul's main focus is on Jesus Christ, and that's shaping how he's ordering his his life and how he's willing to suffer. Specifically, it means he is willing to stay in prison, he's willing to keep suffering for this fruitful labor of ministering to the Philippians. Okay, what about you? What is your main focus, and how is that shaping how you order your life and how you're willing to suffer? In 2009, the band Mumford & Sons, in their song, Awake My Soul, wrote this lyric. It says, In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Uh, That song, and really the entire album, may have been a little overplayed about ten years ago. Um, But what an amazing lyric. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Uh, We could say that this way. Whatever you're most devoted to is going to shape your life. And so what is it for you? Um, About four and a half years ago, a friend and I were um, were both expecting children to be born within about a month of each other. And we both had rooms in our house that we were going to convert to nurseries. It was just this lingering project that was kind of hanging over our heads. And so he came up with a great idea one day. He said, all right, let's take a Saturday, and we're going to spend the whole Saturday um, working on these nurseries. We'll start at your house, and then we'll go to my house. We'll just spend the whole day working on these. And I'm, I'm not what I would describe as like a home project guy. And so like uh, much to my wife's um, disappointment. Um, but I had to like get my head right for this like full day of like working on the house, both my house and my friend's house. And I had to prepare myself for it. But sure enough, we did it. We started at my house in the morning, went to his house in the afternoon. We painted walls. We painted doors. We changed hardware. And I specifically remember um, changing a light fixture in my daughter's room. Now, theoretically, if, you, if you're with someone who knows what they're doing, this is a pretty easy job to change on a light fixture. But because of being in an old house with old wiring, it proved to be really difficult. And I'll never forget me and my friend on two separate chairs um, awkwardly holding this light fixture and like our arms are like shaking and we're trying to hold these little wires and like get the wires all tied together and we're shaking and like awkwardly standing up there. And it was just this like excruciating moment and we barely got through it, but we did. Um, and I had this moment where I thought, just, what am I doing? Like this, this is terrible. I, I, like trying to figure, I'm probably going to shock myself. Our main focus was getting those nurseries done in one day. And that main focus shaped how we ordered that entire day and how we were willing to suffer, specifically hanging awkwardly off these chairs, trying to hold this light fixture up and get it put together. All right, zoom out on your life for a moment. Um, I once had a counselor tell me that sometimes you need to go bird's eye on your life. That means you need to get like the 30,000 foot view from above Get the bird's eye view. Look down on your life. All right, go bird's eye on your life for a moment. What is your main focus? Here's some examples. Uh, If you're most devoted to success at work or in your career, then you're going to order your life around it by working long hours, by maybe picking up extra assignments at work to go above and beyond. 
Uh, and you're going to sacrifice and you're going to suffer in other areas, uh, maybe time with friends or family, um, maybe personal leisure time or hobbies or things like that. Success at work. Um, maybe you're most devoted to getting a certain grade in school. And if that's what you're devoted to, then you're going to order your life around it by spending extra time studying. Uh, you're going to meet with your teacher to get extra help, maybe get a tutor. And you're going to sacrifice and suffer maybe with less screen time, less time on the iPad, less time playing video games, less time with friends. Maybe it's something less concrete for you. Maybe um, you are most devoted to controlling all of the variables in your life. Just having it all and having it all together. So you order your life around it just by scrutinizing every single detail of everything that's going on. And you sacrifice and suffer by taking on this giant burden of doing it all and doing it all perfectly. And then the stress associated with it is just like the price you're willing to pay in order to have control over all the variables in your life. What is it for you? What are you most devoted to? It could be lots of different things. It could be a relationship. It might be your children. It could be a financial goal or objective. It could be pleasure or travel or some amazing experience. And it's not necessarily bad to prioritize some of these things. But none of those things were made to be your main focus. Only Jesus was made to be your main focus. And you will know if something other than Jesus has become your main focus if you feel trapped by the very thing you're chasing after. Uh, the door to one of my kids' rooms, if you leave it open, it'll, it'll, it'll ghost shut. It'll slowly close on its own, and it won't close all the way. And so that means that my dog, Max, will run upstairs sometimes, and he is convinced he needs to go in this room. So my dog, Max, will nudge the door open, and he'll, and he'll follow you know, his desire to go in this room, and sure enough, the door will shut behind him. And so about 30 minutes later, we'll be sitting downstairs, and someone will say, hey, where's Max? Has anyone seen Max? And we know where he is if that comes up. So we'll walk upstairs, and we'll open the door to my daughter's room, and he's just standing there, wagging his tail, waiting for us to let him out. But the very thing that he thought he wanted trapped him. Has the main thing in your life unintentionally trapped you? Uh, maybe you thought the promotion at work would lead to greater freedom. Um, but you're feeling like you're actually back on the treadmill still trying to prove yourself. You're trapped. What Paul is showing us in this text is really upside down and it's really difficult for us to get our minds around. Um, there is so much joy in making Jesus your main thing that it actually leads to greater joy and fulfillment in serving Christ and even in suffering for Christ. That in serving and suffering for Him, we can actually find real, lasting joy. Um, it's the one main thing that leads to freedom and does not trap us. And Paul is telling us this from prison. That he's not actually trapped in prison, but he's as free as he'll ever be right then. Because of Jesus. This is living in Christ. He is your main focus, and because He is your main focus, He shapes how you order your life and how you're willing to suffer. All right, what about dying in Christ? Much more briefly here, let's talk about dying in Christ. First thing is that we have to address is why don't we talk about death? Why don't we talk about death? Uh, pastor and author Tim Keller has... Um, a really small book. It's like really small. Uh, and it's called On Death. 
And it's a great little resource, but I'm just going to read a quote because he speaks to that very issue of why we don't talk about death in our context. He says, Death was something that people used to see up close. To take just one example, the prominent British minister and theologian John Owen outlived every one of his 11 children as well as his first wife. Since people died where they lived at home, Owen literally saw nearly every person he loved die before his eyes. The average person in the United States in colonial times lost one out of every three children before adulthood. And since the life expectancy of all people at that time was about 40 years, great numbers lost their parents when they were still children. Nearly everyone grew up seeing corpses and watching relatives die, young and old. Medicine and science have relieved us of many causes of early death. And today, the vast majority of people decline and die in hospitals and hospices, away from the eyes of others. It is normal now to live to adulthood and not watch anyone die or ever see a corpse except in the brief glance at an open coffin at a funeral. Death is one, of the ab- is one absolute inevitability, yet modern people don't plan for it and don't live as if it's going to happen. Uh, we don't talk about death because we just don't see it like people used to. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Combine that with our just health-crazed culture with life hacks and like tweaking everything to stop the aging process and be healthier longer and look younger. We're just building this story that death is not real. That we're just going to live forever. Even me talking about it right now is a little uncomfortable to stop and think about our own death. And it's important to know that death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is in our world because sin is in our world. It's not what God intended for us in this life. So that's why when it happens to someone you love, it just makes your heart absolutely sink. It just feels so wrong and so terrible. It's just the worst feeling. Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not actually natural. It's gut-wrenching. Yet there's something about what Jesus did that gives us hope in the midst of death. What does Paul tell us? Paul tells us that dying in Christ is, quote, far better. He says it's far better. Look at verse 22, the second half again. He says, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, Paul did not hate his life. Paul was not looking for a way out. He is simply applying the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to his own death. And if Jesus took the punishment for his sin, then he does not need to fear death because death now means eternal life with Christ forever. So verse 21, he says to die is gain. Verse 23 says death is far better. Look at the reflection quotes at the front of your bulletin. They're all worth thinking about this week, but I just want to highlight one of these catechism questions. Uh, it's the third, uh, third one down the page. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is sort of like theological question and answer. It's a summary of what the Bible says, and this is about believers at death. The question is, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Okay, so the Bible says 
that death is not the end for you if you believe in Jesus. But instead, at that point when you die, you are made perfect in holiness. Um, meaning we continue to exist, yet without like the sin and brokenness, no more yuck in our lives. And it says we immediately pass into glory. And at the risk of underselling what glory is like, of being face to face with Jesus, I'll just say that it is so much more beautiful and so much more pleasurable and so much more fulfilling than anything you ever have or will experience in this life. And when we die and we are with Jesus, we're experiencing precisely what God made us for, to be with Him. And it's the best thing, and it's eternal. I want you to think about some of the great experiences of your life. Um, Have you ever experienced something so great? Maybe it was like a meal, just a wonderful meal. Uh, Or maybe it was an amazing vacation. Or maybe a winning season with your favorite sports team where it is so good, uh, but you know in the moment while you're experiencing this amazing thing that is going to end eventually. And so there's this weird thing that happens that while you are like experiencing this wonderful thing and it's just the best thing you could have dreamed up, you actually start to get sad because you know this great thing is going to end eventually. Have you ever felt that way before? Being in glory with Jesus is going to have the feeling of this thing being so good that we're never going to want it to end, we're going to want it to last forever. And guess what? It will. There will be no sadness of that pending day where it ends. It's only going to be perfect forever, unending. All eternity. And we're never going to get bored with it. It may be hard to think about eternity and not imagine getting bored. We're never going to get bored with it. It's only going to be perfect forever. And I can't explain it, but in Paul's words, it's far better. Think about the best thing in your life you've ever ever experienced. Being with Christ after we die, it's far better than that. Um, Kids here this afternoon, I especially want you to hear me say that if you believe in Jesus and you give your life to him, death is not something that you have to be afraid of. You do not have to be afraid of of death. Somehow, God tells us it is even far better than this life. All right, Paul's main focus was Jesus, and that shaped how he ordered his life and how he was willing to suffer. What's your main focus? Do you know that Jesus offers himself to you this afternoon? He offers himself to become that main focus in your life, that most central part of who you are and what you're all about. And when um, Jesus becomes your main focus, the main part of your main central part of your life, it's not this new list of to-dos. It's not more work for you. It's not something on top of what you have going on in your life. It means rest and peace and joy. It's not more to do, but it's greater peace and it's greater rest and it's greater joy. And it actually is going to reorder all those other important things that are vying for the number one spot of becoming your main focus. When Jesus is your main focus, it's going to reorder everything else in your life. And all that other stuff is going to fall into its proper place. And life is going to begin to click because Jesus is at the center. Uh, This afternoon, you are invited into a joyful and vibrant life of following Jesus.
And this life is one that's going to last forever. So won't you receive him by faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news for those who are in Christ that death is not the end. Father, death is hard to talk about. Death can be scary to think about. But knowing You, Jesus, removes our fear. And I pray that You would meet us in that. Help us to understand more of that this afternoon. Father, help us to be able to say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.